I'm leaving this stool here in case I collapse a little later. I hurt my foot, so we'll see if we can uh, get through this thing completely upright today. Uh, we are continuing our series in Acts today, so if you want to open your Bibles and jump with me over to Acts chapter 14, that would be wonderful. While you're turning there, I do want to really quickly, this is off topic, but I want to make sure I make you guys aware of it, uh, depending on whether or not you live in St. Charles County or St. Louis County, you may or may not have heard about this, but uh, St. Louis County and St. Charles County are reinstituting mask mandates in public starting tomorrow, uh, and we don't know fully how that will play out in churches. There's going to be an official document coming out in the morning as well as a press conference, and so as soon as we have a better handle on exactly what that'll mean for you guys, we'll send that out in an email, but that will mean that this gathering will be different in some way uh, next Sunday, so look out for that communication from our elders this week about how we'll be um, engaging that. But Anyway, we got a lot to cover today, so I want to get to it quickly. Acts chapter 14, this is one of my favorite narratives in all of Acts. This is one of those texts where, because I'm the guy who sets the preaching schedule, I went through and said, I get this one. Uh, and so I'm, I'm stoked for this. Um, I, I wasn't here last week. Uh, I was, you guys were very kind to let me go hang out with my family and swim at the lake for a while. But Craig did an amazing job taking us to the text. If you weren't here, I would strongly encourage you, jump online on YouTube or on our church podcast, grab that sermon, catch up on that. Um, if you are, or don't recall, or maybe if you're just visiting, whatever that is, we're in the middle of Paul's first missionary journey. And we're actually going to end out that missionary journey in our text today. There's three missionary journeys that Acts records Paul taking. We're in the first one. The church at Antioch sent him off with Barnabas, and they traveled through Galatia, preaching the gospel and planting churches. And we are picking up in the last leg of this journey. So Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 8, we read this. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of, of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. 
and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Bithynia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Because I love this text. Before we go any further, I want to take a minute and pray for us to engage this. But I am, I am excited to talk about this story. Pray with me, church. Father, we ask in the next few minutes as we take some time to talk about this text, to consider what it means to actually be your disciple, to actually give ourselves over to the work of following you. Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher in this space. Holy Spirit, illuminate your text, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, remind us of things we know and have forgotten, teach us new things about you. But God, above all of this, I pray that we would have open eyes, open ears, soft, moldable hearts, that we would leave this space today having heard from you and having done work with you. We love you, Jesus. We trust you. Father. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, as I said, we're in Paul's first missionary journey, and this text represents the last narrative leg of that journey. It ends with them making their way back to Antioch and everyone partying because God is so awesome, which is kind of the way you should end mission trips, right? But Anyway, what I love about this text is it takes us to such extremes. We see some of the most extreme depths of persecution in the church, in the life of following Christ, in some of the most extreme places of celebration, worship, community, unity in the same text. And I think that's not incidental for us. I think what we're going to see in this, as obvious, as plain as it is, I think it's what what God actually has for us today, is, is the simple truth of this text, which is if you follow after Christ, you will experience opposition. If you choose the life of the kingdom, you will suffer for that choice. But I'm here to tell you it is worth it. It is worth it. The life of following Christ is a life that involves suffering. Suffering that is worth the price that is paid. So as we go through this, I'm going to point out a couple things. There's a couple cultural things, one historical thing that I think will help illuminate this text for us, kind of uncloud it a little bit for us. But I really think the message here is pretty simple. I think as we get to that space, it's going to wrap us around to some of Jesus' teaching in Luke and in the Gospel of John, and we're just going to end our time in some time of prayer. Sound good? Awesome. 
So, remember where we're at. First missionary journey. Do, do we have the map that we can put up that shows the little, the little lines? The, the, the tall rectangle one? That one. Okay. So you guys see this? A lot of your Bibles probably have a map similar to this in the back. We're going through this first journey. Paul and Barnabas have left Antioch. You can see it in the top right corner there. They made their way across the island of Cyprus. They made their way north into the land and went inland to this region in the top middle of the map called Galatia. And they've been traveling from city to city in Galatia, preaching the gospel. Now, up until this point, the story has been wild and amazing. It has been a story of victory after victory. Everywhere they go, there's opposition. There's people arguing with them. There's a demonically influenced magician yelling at them at one point, right? And yet, everywhere they go... The Holy Spirit speaks, Paul and Barnabas preach, people are saved, and churches are planted. Now, the opposition keeps getting more and more intense, especially from Jewish leaders who don't like these two guys coming in and trying to convert Jews to this new way, this new teaching they have. But but each time, each city they go to, however strong the opposition may be, it's not strong enough. And when Paul and Barnabas leave, there is a church in that city. People who have received salvation in Jesus, who were dead but are now alive, who were lost but are now found, who were enemies of God, who are now adopted children of God. Every city they leave, the mark they leave behind is the work of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel, salvation. It's amazing. This whole story up to this point has been victory after victory after victory. And then we get to Lystra. When they get to Lystra, things go a little different. So Paul and Barnabas arrive at this city, and one of the things we see about this city is that apparently, although Luke is just leaving out a lot of details here, but apparently this city was less Jewishly influenced than a lot of the other cities in Galatia, which seems to be kind of in keeping with what uh, other histories tell us. But rather than a picture of Paul and Barnabas preaching in the synagogue, we get an image of Paul and Barnabas preaching in the city square, out in public for anyone in this city. In this context, context, we're introduced to a man who is lame from birth. For whatever reason, whether it's genetic or deformity, whatever it is, there's something wrong with his legs, and this man has never walked his entire life. But he is zoned in on Paul's gospel presentation. And the text tells us that Paul sees the man and looks at him intently. We've seen this line a couple times. We'll actually see this several times over the course of Paul's ministry. This is Luke telling us that this is a Holy Spirit moment, that the the Holy Spirit is drawing Paul's attention, and he doesn't just see this man, he sees this man in a deep and true and discerning sense. The text tells us that Paul can see this man's faith which is a weird way to say it, right? But the Holy Spirit is giving him discernment. This guy, this guy is a part of God's church. God is saving him. This is the work that's happening. And so he speaks boldly to this man, and we see a miracle. He speaks and says, stand up, and the guy stands up. He jumps up and down. He's shouting their celebration. Now, really quick, If you've been following the story, this is not actually all that abnormal, 
right? God does this kind of thing. In fact, Peter and John did almost this exact same thing at the entrance to the temple earlier on in Acts, and Jesus himself did this exact same thing multiple times over the course of his ministry. So what we have here from Luke is first and foremost an affirmation again that the ministry happening in Paul and Barnabas, the ministry to the Gentiles, is the same ministry as the ministry of the other apostles and the ministry of Jesus himself. This is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus, the gospel, the kingdom of God going forward, right? Some of the accusations against Paul is that he was doing his own thing. No, Paul is a normative continuation of the work God is doing through Jesus, through his church. So we see that piece, right? It's not that unfamiliar. And yet, it's actually very different. See, normally, when this sort of thing happens, people celebrate. (laughs) And up till this point, when this sort of thing has happened in Jesus' ministry or in the ministry of the apostles in Jerusalem, lots of people came to Christ and some religious leaders argued and debated over it. That was kind of the normal response to these healing miracles. But here, in faraway Galatia, in the city of Lystra, without without being surrounded by a group of people who already know who Yahweh is, surrounded by a bunch of Roman and Greek pagans, the response is very different. These people go wild and celebrate all right, but what they go wild about is, the gods have come to visit us. Look, this is Zeus. This is Hermes. Someone go get the priest to Zeus. Let's kill some oxen and put like olive branches on their heads because that's the thing we do. And they go for it. And they're speaking, by the way, not in Greek, not in like the language of the empire. They're speaking in their local Galatian dialect. And so Paul and Barnabas see everyone celebrating and they're like, cool, all right, yeah, gospel going forth. And then they see the priest of Zeus come out and he's all of a sudden got a couple bulls and it starts to dawn on them, this is not going the way it normally goes. And so they run out into the crowd, ripping their clothes, saying, no, 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 you have got this wrong. We are not gods. We are men like you. And they have to beg these people not to offer sacrifices to them. And it gives us this little picture of Paul's kind of apologetic sermon, right? Like, I'm not a god. I'm a messenger of the one true God, and he's been gracious to you, but he's calling you to something new. And it says they, they barely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. This is a buck wild story, right? There's a couple of things we have to know about this. You see, it's not enough to explain this just to say these are Gentiles, not Jews. You see, you have to remember Roman religion, we've talked about this a couple times, Roman religion pretty much just took whatever religion already existed in the area they conquered and just said, that's ours now, and just kind of globbed it into their big pile of religious beliefs. And Galatia was an incredibly Hellenized Greek area. So Greek religion had deep old roots. And so even though Galatia is part of Rome, this is, this is like, think every stereotype you can think of, of like Greek mythology, like the Disney Hercules movie, like that's, that's how these people understand theology. 
What you have to understand about the practice of Greek religion and in the way that, that even converted into Greek mythology within Roman religion is this. They didn't hold to sacred texts the way we do. They didn't have a Torah or a Bible. What they had were the poets, ancient and modern. Their theology was encapsulated in their poetry. And it didn't matter how old or new the poem was. And by the way, it didn't matter to them whether or not that poem represented historical truth or anything accurate. All that mattered to them was, does this poem reflect how we think the gods generally interact with humanity? If it does, it's golden, and we'll lock onto it, and we'll keep it, and we'll use it for our theological teaching. So whether that poem was two or three hundred years old and written by Homer, or whether it was written by the guy down the street three weeks ago, if it seemed like that's the kind of thing Zeus would do, that's a good enough poem. You keep that one, you use it, you teach from it. And in this specific area, about 45 years prior to our story, there was a Greek poet named Ovid who wrote a long poem about the region of Galatia. And in his poem... Zeus and Hermes decided to test the people of Galatia. And so they took on human form and disguised themselves as poor beggars, and they landed in a city about a mile west of where Paul and Barnabas are standing right now, and they started walking door to door, knocking on doors, saying, we are poor begging travelers who will help us. And in this poem, person after person rejects them and says, I don't have time for you. I don't know you. I can't help you. Rejecting them, not giving them hospitality until they finally come upon this old couple who are almost starving in their poverty, but when they see how poor these beggars are, they say, we don't have much, but come in. We'll share what we have. And so they bring in Zeus and Hermes in disguise, and they share a meal with them. And at that point, Zeus and Hermes reveal themselves for who they truly are. And as a reward to this ancient couple, this old, this old couple, they give them their youth back and destroy their house and build it up as a temple of Zeus and make them young priests and priestess of that temple. And then they go around and lightning bolt every single one of the houses that rejected them and blow up basically the whole city. It's a pretty intense story, right? (laughs) But by this day, that story was so accepted into the lexicon of Greek and Roman theology that the stereotype of Galatia was that they are inhospitable people. They are unkind. They don't help strangers. So who do you think had a chip on their shoulder to be incredibly kind to strangers? The people of Galatia. The people of Lystra. So when these two random guys show up and start preaching a message, this some kind of weird theology they've never heard of, and then like 20 minutes later, a guy gets miraculously healed, their first thought is, oh my goodness, it's happening again. Did anyone reject them? Did anyone say no? They can come in their house. Quick, be nice to these people. And so they run to sacrifice because they are very concerned with making sure they do not repeat this mistake and get Zeus lightning bolts everywhere, right? So this city is very devoted to the worship of Zeus. They have a temple to Zeus at the city gate. Guys, there weren't a huge amount of Zeus temples in the world at that point. There were a couple ones that were really big and grand, but it wasn't super common, mostly because he's kind of mean. 
So you got to be careful if you want to be a Zeus person in that pantheon, right? But these people are about Zeus. So they call Paul Hermes and Barnabas Zeus, because Paul is the one speaking, right? And they're trying to sacrifice to them. And look how these guys respond. They get upset. They say, no, don't do that. They essentially blaspheme Zeus. They say, no, 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 no. We're just men like you, and you've got this whole thing wrong. We're here to tell you about the true God, Yahweh, who you've never heard of. Now, as much as these people may have a chip on their shoulders to make sure they're not known as unhospitable people, these are Zeus people. And that was blasphemy. And that was offensive to to the extreme, right? And then what happens immediately after that? We get this perfect storm where this group of Jewish leaders who have taken it upon themselves to chase after Paul and Barnabas from city to city, stirring up division and dissension against them, show up from the previous city. And if you remember from the last text, they already had a plan in mind for how to deal with these guys. These guys are heretics. We need to stone them to death. They got away in Iconum. But when they show up at Lystra, all these boys have already dug themselves in. They've already offended these people. And you can just see these couple Jewish leaders in the back of the mob being like, yeah, they are heretics. Someone should stone them. And they do. It works. This perfect storm of opposition comes together and they stone Paul. Now, guys, I don't want to move past this too quickly. And there's a reason I, I say this. If you've been in church world long enough, this is the kind of phrase that you can just kind of, it can just kind of get worked into your mental lexicon of like, yeah, stoning, that's the way they killed people back then. It's probably pretty awful. And you just kind of mentally move past it. But, but we, we would be doing ourselves a disservice in engaging this text if we did not reflect on the reality of stoning for a moment. Now, I apologize ahead of time because this is a graphic description. But stoning was a form of capital punishment that existed in the Jewish and the Roman world, usually used around uh, sins or breaking laws around infidelity or adultery, or this, breaking religious laws. If you were speaking heresy, stoning was often, capital punishment through stoning was often the way it was done. Now, there are multiple specific ways this works out, but the general fact of it is whoever is being executed by way of stoning is bound in some way, either by throwing them off a small cliff or by tying them up and then you, or burying them partially in the ground. But then you would pelt them with stones. And when I say stones, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about your, your landscaping gravel, like the little white rocks in your front yard. We're talking about two-handed stones that weigh 15, 20, 30 pounds that you have to lift over your head and chuck. And the person will be executed by way of just plurality of blunt force trauma. If you actually go and read historical records of this, it usually took 20 to 30 minutes to kill someone this way. Of people standing over them, pelting them with stones over and over and over and over in their face, their head, their chest, until they finally passed out. And then you would continue until they were dead. This is intense. 
This is what they do to Paul. Right there in the city square, they bind him in some way, and they heave stones upon him until he is dead in their eyes. The text says they drag him outside the city and leave him. So they take his body to the trash dump to leave it there. I got to go to the lake last week, and uh, over the course of that trip, I got to uh, take my kids out on wave runners a bunch. My kids really enjoyed it, going super fast and bumping over the waves and this and that. Now, my son Moses is two years old, and uh, if you've ever had a two-year-old boy, you know that one of the things they enjoy is moving much more quickly than a two-year-old boy should be able to move, right? So I'm taking him out on the wave runner, and he keeps going faster, 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 faster. He keeps wanting to get it going faster and faster, even though you know, he's at the stage where his life jacket is a marshmallow and he can't really hold on to anything if he wants to. And so I'm like driving along and then I'll see a wave and kind of grab him and driving along. Well, at one point I didn't see a wave (laughs) and we hit it very hard and he just got a face full of handlebar and it was just instant goose egg on his cheekbone and he wasn't enjoying himself anymore. And so we took him back to the dock and it was all swollen up and you know, gross and up and in. You can go down and see him. He's in child care. He's got a huge black eye and it's very disconcerting. Disconcerting enough that when we were driving home, we stopped at a rest stop and some random stranger was like, how did you get your bruised little boy? Like, <laughs> you know, giving me the, the stink eye. Here's the thing. The reason I share that. The reason that man asked him that is because when you see someone with blunt force trauma on their face, it's disturbing. Right? I'm talking about my little boy just getting a face full of handlebars, you know. Not that bad. I, I know this is crass, but I want you to imagine a man who's been beaten with rocks for 30 minutes. This is an ugly scene. Paul did not look wounded. Paul did not look bad. Paul looked dead. That's why they drug him out to the trash an intense scene, guys. That's why I had to lighten it up with my son a little bit. <laughs> but, but, but I'm serious when I say this. And, and by the way, the text is a little, a little vague here. You know, it's, it, there's actually some debate amongst theologians because of the way Luke chose to word it about whether or not Paul actually did die and the Spirit chose to resurrect him. Paul would speak a little later about having a vision of heaven and some of those things and lead some people to think that stuff. But the text doesn't tell us one way or the other. Well, what we know from the text is that Paul looked dead. And the church comes out and they stand around him. And I want you to imagine yourself in the place of these disciples, according to the text. Brand new Christians. You're hanging out, living your life in Lystra, and some guy shows up and tells you about the one true God and his plan for you and the fact that he loves you and the forgiveness of sins, and you can offer your life to him and walk in obedience to him and everything will change. And a day later, you're standing over that guy's bruised and bloody dead body going, what the heck did I sign up for? I want you to imagine the weight of this scene. If that's you in that moment, what are you thinking? text tells us that Paul gets up. Somehow, the Holy Spirit empowers Paul through strength, through endurance, through healing. We don't know, but some way the Holy Spirit empowers Paul, and the boy stands up and look at this church. He walks back into the city. I want you to imagine that scene. He just got tied up and stoned to death in the city square. 
and he walks back in. Imagine the look on the people of that city as dead Paul walks back in, does a little step around his own blood pool to get to wherever he's staying that night. And the text, I love this, just moves on. It switches into this summary mode. The next day, he walks to Derby, which is miles away. I want you to think about what's going on in Paul's body that he gets up the next morning and just walks miles and miles and miles. But he gets up the next morning and walks to Derby, and they preach the gospel there and plant a church there. And then it just gives us this quick, kind of like almost montage scene of a backtrack where Paul and Barnabas reverse their trip and backtrack through every city they visited. And they go to each one of these churches that God has planted, and they encourage the believers and make sure they have elders and pastors in place and work their way back to Antioch. And look at what it says Paul said to encourage these churches. This is in verse 27, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So you've thought about yourself as that hours old believer in Lystra. Imagine yourself as the month old believer in Iconium or Antioch at Poseidon. Paul shows up, he preaches, The message connects with you. The Spirit awakens your heart. You receive Jesus. You're baptized. You're part of this new movement. This church is mean together. You're sharing life. You're studying the Scripture. You're praying. The Spirit is alive. You're this is the most insane thing I've ever signed up for. This is amazing. And then a month later, Paul shows back up. And you see him. And he doesn't look that good. He's covered in bruises and scars and bumps. He's walking with a limp. His nose is twisted to a side that you don't think it used to be twisted to. Dude looks like he got stoned. (laughs) Yeah. And he comes back to you and says, stay with the faith. Endure. Do not give up. Do not lose heart. You will suffer for the kingdom. Keep it up. See you later. And then he goes to the next town. That's his message. Bruised and broken, bleeding Paul, limping back to Antioch, saying, Endure! You must suffer for the kingdom. It is worth it. Stick with it. And when they get back to Antioch, that church celebrates. Guys, this is is about as plain of a, of a text, like a meaning in the text as you can grab a hold of. Paul's message to these churches, Paul's experience of following after Christ is as plain as day. It is the exact encouragement he gave to these churches. Endure. Stick with it. Don't give up. You will suffer for the kingdom. But stick with it. It's worth it. You will suffer, but continue in the faith. It's worth it. Following Jesus will cost you something, but endure. Guys, I am, I think this is important for us today because of this. It is so easy in our Western American expressions of the church to buy into the prosperity gospel. 
And, and, and I want to I say this in a very specific way. Because in our little faith tradition, it's really easy to grab a hold of someone who's like, well, if you just pray and you give enough money, then you'll be rich and, and you'll have a cool boat. And we go, that's, that's ridiculous. That's dumb. That's garbage. Get that out of here. But then we immediately turn around and we say to each other, but hey, listen, if you pray and you're faithful in church, then you'll be emotionally healthy and happy and fulfilled. Which, by the way, is the same heresy. It's the same heresy. The promise of Jesus is not comfort. It is not security. It is not wealth. It is not things or pleasure. The promise of Jesus is cross now, crown later. Cross now, crown later. When, when Jesus spoke to his disciples on the way to Jerusalem, going to his crucifixion, he said, if any of you would follow me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. You must be willing to give of your life to follow me. He said this in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all will see it begun and, and mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king at war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you, hear this, church, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now that's stinking intense. What Jesus is saying here, by the way, when he uses the word hate here, I know I'm like giving a hard word and you're like, don't lessen it. But when he uses the word hate here, he's not using the word the way we normally use it. What Jesus is saying here is, if you don't love me and love the kingdom more than everything else, if I don't have primacy in your soul, then you are not actually my follower. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you have to hate your family in the sense of like, I hate you, get away from me. What he's saying is, if I do not have primacy in your heart, you are not following me. It's not how it works. Jesus is not content to share your life with anyone or anything else. Not that he hates your wife and family and is going to take them away. But if Jesus is your Lord, he is your Lord. He said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other. Or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus is your Lord or he is not. And so Jesus says, come, yes, follow after me. But we're willing to give up literally everything. Put everything on the table. Guys, there's so many amazing blessings in this life. Family, loved ones, comforts, joys, tastes, experiences. There's so many wonderful things that are good, that God delights in, that, that we are invited to delight in. But they can't have primacy in your life. Even good things. 
can't have primacy in your life if you want to follow Jesus. You know, Paul, later in life, when he was genuinely thought he was facing death again, he started talking about all the good things in his life, his theological acumen, his heritage, his, his, his training, all these different things. And he said, in, in the face of Jesus, compared to Jesus, they are trash to me. Good things. Good things. But in comparison, they're, they're nothing. Because this is what Jesus is pointing us to. If you choose the life of Christ, if you choose to follow after Jesus, if you, if you choose to make Jesus the Lord of your life, well, you will face hardship. You will suffer. Hard and bad things will happen to you. As we live in a cursed and broken world, sinful, dreadful things happen. Dudes get drug out in the street and stoned to death. If you choose to follow Jesus, you will experience pain and suffering. You just will. This is part of the thing. But, but, you get Jesus. You get Christ. You get access to God himself, the lover of your soul, the one who created you, the one who knows you, the one who can actually give you peace, the one who can help you to endure, the one who heals you, the one who provides for you, the one who built you to enjoy pleasures and comforts. You get him. You get him. Jesus tells us that when you, when you follow after him, the Spirit of God, the Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, dwells within you. You get communion with God. Beloved, this outweighs any cost, any cost you pay to have it. This is why Jesus said in the parable, the kingdom of God is like a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field, and in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has that he can go and buy the field and have the treasure. Because everything he has at home is not as worth as much as the treasure. He's willing to give up everything he has to have that treasure because it's that good. Beloved, this is Jesus to you. He's that good. I know as I say this, and I talk about this, some of you are, are t- thinking through different sufferings or injustices you've experienced or expressions of the curse you've experienced. And some of you are thinking about wonderful blessings you have relationships, friends, family. And you're thinking, there's no, there's no way, there's no way God doesn't want me to have that and pursue that. How can, you, how can you say I have to reject that to follow Christ? Don't, don't mishear me, beloved. I'm not telling you Jesus hates your family or your marriage or whatever. That's, that would, that's insane. <laughs> what I'm telling you is that Jesus is better. He's better than your marriage better than your kids. It's better than your career. It's better than your comforts. He's better than your joys, better than your dreams, better than your ambitions, better than your pleasures, better than literally everything. To have him, to have access to Jesus, to have the Spirit of God dwelling in, in you, beloved, that is worth the price. It is worth the cost. It is worth suffering. It is worth walking with a limp. So Paul says, 
church, endure. Stay the course. You will inherit the kingdom through much tribulation, but stay the course. It's worth it. It's worth the price you pay. Beloved, there is a price to pay for the gospel of Jesus. To pursue after Christ, to be a person of the kingdom, means cross now and crown later. It means hardships now and heaven later. It means sacrificing comfort and selfishness now. It means risk right now. It means putting Jesus above your social standing right now. It means putting Jesus above your financial security right now. It means putting Jesus above your political convictions right now. It means putting Jesus above your preferences for church or schedule or worship right now. It means putting Jesus above your desires, even good desires for relationship or family or marriage or whatever, right now. It means proclaiming the gospel now, even when it costs you. Even when it costs you social standing. Even when it risks a relationship. It means cross now. Crown later. Delayed satisfaction. I know we're all good at that, right? Beloved of Jesus, this is the promise of the gospel. Look at its messenger, Paul, walking bloody and bruised and limping and broken. Look at its Savior, Jesus, bearing his wounds from the cross, even in eternity, pierced and unjustly killed. At this point, you may be asking yourself, Sam, do you actually want me to follow Jesus? Because <laughs> this sounds terrible. This sounds painful. This sounds like it might not be worth it. It is worth it. But here's the thing. I hope you're thinking this. I hope you are genuinely considering this. This is the most important question you can ever ask yourself. The gospel of Jesus will cost you. If you want to genuinely follow after the person of Jesus and make him your Lord, saying, Jesus, you are Lord. That means primacy over everything else. I will not serve two masters, but my life is given to you. If you genuinely are considering that, losing your life that you might gain it, then I want you to genuinely ask if you're willing to pay that price. Because it's a big ask. It's, it's saying that my life will not be about me and my pleasures and my comforts. My life will be about honoring God and loving others. And that is a big ask that will cost you. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Beloved, it's worth it. A guy like Paul is our testimony sitting in prison, writing a letter to a church, recounting all the blessings in his life, saying, I don't care about any of those. They're garbage to me. I forget what is behind and I look on towards what is ahead, eternity with Jesus. And he's genuinely considering whether or not he'll be executed. And he says, I don't know if I want to survive this imprisonment or not. I'm still thinking about it. 
which is a weird thing to write to someone. Because I'm still thinking about if I, sh- if, I, if I want to survive this imprisonment or not. Because, because if I live, I mean, that's more time to give my life to Christ. But if I die, I mean, that's gain. It's eternity with Christ. Which do I want? I don't know. It's in Philippians chapter 2. Beloved, this is the promise of the gospel. Cross now, crown later. But beloved, it is worth it. So I'm going to land here. I'm going to land here with this thought. I know that as I say this, some of you are in this room and you are already like Paul. You are already limping. You are already bruised and broken. The messiness of this world has had its way with you. I am not foolish enough to think that many of us don't walk into this space already beaten up and beaten down. If that is you, if you're in this place and you hear your pastor saying, endure suffering for the sake of the kingdom, you're like, amen, I don't know if I can. I feel so beat up already. I want you to hear this. Jesus has rest and joy for you. Jesus himself said, take heart, take heart. I have overcome this world. Just come to me when you are weary, when you are burdened. My my, my burden is, is light. My yoke is easy. I will give you rest. Because even though there is a price to pay, and even though following Christ means enduring suffering, the beautiful thing is you get Jesus. And Jesus is in the suffering with you. And Jesus gives you peace and endurance and strength. And Jesus will return and make all things new. And will right every wrong and bring justice to every scale. So yeah, even if you're beat up, even if you feel like you have nothing left in the tank, my message is still the same to you. Beloved, take heart, endure. You will suffer for the kingdom, but it is worth it. It is worth it. Stay the course. Endure. God has amazing things in store for you. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to encourage you guys to listen to this song. This is one of my favorite songs. It talks, it's, I mean, it's directly from Scripture, and it talks about how God meets us in the effects of the curse and our own sin and injustice and hurt and offers us forgiveness and offers us grace and offers us joy in life. I want to encourage you to reflect on this song as it's sung over you, and I want to encourage you to pray pray about the ways the curse has affected you and the cost that you must pay to follow Jesus. I know there are some of you in this space that have not yet decided to follow Jesus and you heard this and you're like, Sam, that's the worst sales pitch I've ever heard for becoming a Christian. And that's cool. I would encourage you to consider the invitation of Jesus to you right now. That invitation is come and die and find life in me. Come and give up your life and gain the world. I would encourage you to consider that. If you're in this space and you are beat up and exhausted and don't know how you are going to endure to take the next step to finish well, I would encourage you to fall at the feet of Jesus. 
tell him how exhausted you are. He delights to give rest to the weary. If you need someone to pray with you, please grab me or Craig. We're both available. I'll go stand in the back of the room. If you don't want to see people seeing you pray, I would love to pray the encouragement of Jesus over you today. If your heart needs that. Beloved, through Jesus, we can endure. It is worth it. I'm going to end us with how this text ends. They get back to Antioch and they tell the stories. And look what they say. They declared all that God had done. How he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. The moral of the story at the very end of it, the way they share it, the way they celebrate it, is look what God has done. Because God never left their side. Because God accomplished the work. Because God kept them on their feet. Because God brought them home. And he will do the same for you, beloved. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are worthy of all praise. You love us and care for us so well. God, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hurt, you care for us so well. Lord, I pray today for those of us in this space who are weary and burdened, that you would, you would show us how you call us to rest. For those of us in this space who are way too enamored with the things of this world, may you challenge us to walk in real sacrifice. For those of us who are scared to give up the pleasures of this world to seek after you, may you give us clear eyes to see your invitation and find life in you. We love you, Jesus. Church, do the work you need to do today. Let this song be sung over you.